Hi, everybody. Welcome to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. Joe Cotter here with our host, Dr. Susanna Greer. You doing okay, Susanna? I am doing great, Joe. How are you? I'm good. We're going to talk science today. Cancer research, like always. Cancer vaccines in this case. And our guest today, actually, she also has some really interesting insights into COVID-19 and the, the challenges that need to be overcome to develop a vaccine for COVID-19. We should mention that if you're a cancer patient or a caregiver with, with questions about COVID-19 and cancer, please visit cancer.org slash coronavirus. Um, ACS has put together some very helpful information and resources, including some questions you might want to ask your healthcare provider. Also, keep in mind that ACS needs your support. The needs of people facing cancer continue, and so will the work of the American Cancer Society. One of the things we do is fund cancer research, and right now we're funding around $420 million of cancer research and training grants, including a grant to Dr. Nora Desis, our guest today. She's Professor of Medicine and Associate Dean at the University of Washington, and she's an American Cancer Society professor. That's our most prestigious research award. It's given to only a couple of people each year. Susanna, why is she an ACS professor? What is she known for? Oh, wow, Joe. So Nora is just amazing. Um, she's a research professor because she has made truly, as you said, seminal contributions in the space of our understanding around vaccines for cancer. Nora presented the ACS with what she calls a really far out idea <laughs> to prevent the de development of cancer. And uh, it's just been thrilling to watch her career. She has um, been an incredible mentor for numerous, numerous, numerous trainees in this space. Um, her level of volunteerism in the cancer community is really unsurpassed. And uh, truly, she is a thought leader when we think about um, how do we prevent cancer in the space of a vaccine, which is really why I wanted to talk to her today, because I think that not all of us think about vaccination all the time. And certainly this is an evergreen topic right now as we think about developing a vaccine for the novel coronavirus. So I asked Nora to take us through a story and help us to understand, just remind us how do vaccines work? So how, how do you vaccinate against an infectious disease? And, and she does, she does this beautiful job of telling us the kind of the basic principles of vaccine theory. So fine, we're all convinced of that. And then I was like, well, okay, well, how is that different from vaccinating against cancer? And Nora reminded us of all of the challenges in the space against vaccines against cancer and inherently it's a problem of kind of tricking our immune system because when we're faced with an infection it's just something the immune system's never seen before versus a cancer which starts out as us so I'll I'll leave you with that kind of uh, to ponder as you listen to Nora because she just takes us um, down a beautiful description of the challenges of using vaccine technology to prevent cancer and her thought processes around how we manipulate the immune response in that space. And then, Nora, we end by going full circle to where we sit right now in the pandemic 
and thinking about how all of the technology, all of our understanding, all of our advances in vaccine technology got us where we are today, which is that just a few weeks after sequencing the genome of this novel coronavirus, we're already in a phase one clinical trial, which is just light speed. But there are challenges, and Nora's going to help us understand those. So I think you'll enjoy listening to Nora. Um, truly, she is a delight, absolutely a world leader in um, our thoughts around vaccination for cancer. Hi, Nora. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I am I am hanging in there. I'm a lucky person. Um, it's the end of March, the last day of March in 2020, and the entire world finds itself in a really challenging space. I'm home with my family and pets and husband who's also working, so interesting times. Um, we do find ourselves in the middle of a global pandemic. I, I would like to start by just saying your lab is located in Seattle, so it's at the Cancer Vaccine Institute at UW Medicine. How are you holding up? What's happening? We're holding up well. Of course, we're concerned about our clinical colleagues, the clinical staff and our patients, because Seattle is one of the areas where the uh, pandemic first started in the United States. Right now, we're on um, stay-at-home orders. We're trying to prevent the spread of the virus further, and uh, the lab has pretty much decreased activity as only a few people are allowed in the lab uh, to do some critical work. But we're trying to do our best to help. Most of the labs at UW have donated gloves, masks, any supplies that they can to help clinical care to our colleagues. So we're, we're trying to get through the present, but uncertainty of the future has caused a lot of anxiety. Oh, I'm sure. I, I love what you said, that you're just doing the best you can to stay focused in the present. You and your staff are at home and collaborating to help through donations. That's really wonderful. Could you share maybe just for our listeners who don't think all the time about how labs work, um, how, how has your research been impacted? Like, what is, that, what is that like when those gears start to shift down? Most of the staff of the Cancer Vaccine Institute um, have been asked to stay at home. Uh, this is very necessary because we're all trying to prevent people from contracting coronavirus or potentially spreading coronavirus. We have some staff that are deemed critical staff to be able to go at work. Um, some of those staff are still conducting therapeutic clinical trials, although our clinical trials that don't have a direct therapeutic impact on cancer patients have been asked to go on hold during the epidemic. And the staff that are doing laboratory work, only a few can go into the lab to keep long-term exper uh, experiments ongoing. So we have um, some experiments that have been going on for six to eight months that were allowed to finish over a period of time. But those staff can't be in the lab with other people. So we have to really modulate who's going to be in the lab at one time. So people are at home. They're reviewing data. They're preparing papers and reports. They're catching up on reading. They're taking online training. 
um, and we're trying to weather through this and keep our research going. It sounds like you're, you and your colleagues are trying to make the best of a really challenging situation. Um, and there's a lot that scientists can do from home. Of course, we miss the face-to-face -face interaction just like everybody else. Um, but it, but it, it's really gratifying to hear that the thinking behind the science continues. So I guess I have a two-part question. And one, maybe we'll take the negative and the positive. So if you had to say, what what is your concern about the impact on your research during this period? But I guess also, is there something that you think is could be positive or a positive outcome when we're all back at work to this time at home of um, sheltering in place? I think my biggest concern um, and the concern of most of the investigators in the Cancer Vaccine Institute is that work is going to come to a crashing halt and it will be hard to get the momentum back up and going. But I do have to say one of my mantras that I've really been pushing on the group is that we have a lot of projects and we've been going at breakneck speed, generating data and generating data that I'm constantly telling people, sometimes it's good to slow down and review your data and think about the data rather than jumping on to the next experiment. So in reality, this is forcing us to do that. Um, we've gotten together as a group. We've decided what each individual person in the lab who can stay at home is going to do at home in terms of putting together data packages that we can all review on conference calls. And I think in the long term, this break to think and review what we've done is going to make our research stronger. I've heard that from so many of my colleagues who are across the spectrum of society that we're all rushed and busy and working really hard. Right. And sometimes it's really good to reflect about not only what's most important in our own lives, but what's most important in our work lives and to make sure we're, we're doing our best and that we're elevating the, the best work product we can. So best of luck to you. We'll, we'll, we'll reach back out in a year and it'll be really interesting to do that human experiment. And I'll ask you that question again as to, did, did it work? So I, I want to dive into your research because you you were really well known for your incredible work in cancer vaccines. So before we get to that, though, for those of us who don't think about just kind of vaccination all the time, um, let's let's level set a bit. So I think most of us are more familiar with the vaccines that we might get as kids or for our kids or as we progress through adulthood and need to be vaccinated against things like influenza. So I, I think we're all more familiar with vaccines that prevent infectious disease than a vaccine um, in the cancer space. So just help it, give us a an eighth grade reminder of how would a vaccine against like the measles work? Well, when we think about vaccines against the measles, the vaccine we actually get is called MMR. 
And it's a cocktail that immunizes us against three different bugs, measles, mumps, and rubella. So let's talk about the measles part of the vaccine. What vaccines do is they educate the immune system to have a huge immune response against a particular germ without actually being fully infected by that germ. So the measles part of the vaccine, the MMR vaccine, is kind of old-fashioned technology for stimulating the immune system. And when I mean old-fashioned technology, the measles part of the vaccine is an attenuated live virus vaccine. And what that means is we actually get immunized with measles, which has been disabled and causes a low-level infection. And because measles is so foreign, the immune system sees that weak measles virus and generates full-fledged immunity. In fact, when we get the MMR and we get a little bit of a fever or our arm gets sore, um, this, is, this is why we've got that attenuated live virus. And this is why um, if you have a child who's got an immune system disorder, the, that child may be delayed in being able to get the MMR vaccine. But that attenuated or disabled virus can give us over 95% protection against getting the full-fledged measles infection. And that's because when the immune system is educated, it creates both antibodies, which are proteins that can circulate in our bloodstream and bind to measles proteins, as well as T cells that can directly kill the virus and um, pr protect us from getting sick. All right. Well, that all sounds like a best case scenario to me, because as you said, you are starting off with a problem. And in this case, the bug, the problem is measles and is something we've never been exposed to before. And so when you vaccinate, when you use what you called a disabled form of the measles, which is kind of this weak, puny measles, that can't cause a full-fledged infection, but it can educate the immune system to, hey, this is what measles is all about. Measles is going to be a problem for you. And so the immune system gears up, makes us not feel great for a couple of days as these B cells and T cells of the immune system get all excited about this disabled measles virus that we've been vaccinated with. So that to me seems like, you're right, old fashioned, but also kind of best case scenario. So I think the challenge, the part that I'd like for you to help us to understand is why is that scenario, that infectious disease scenario, so different 
than vaccinating against cancer because cancer is not any of those things really. Cancer cells inherently start off not as being something the immune system has never seen, but they started off as being a normal healthy cell that became cancerous through accumulation of mutations and now they look different and are a big problem. So maybe just help us to understand what, I guess let's start with, do vaccines against cancer generally work in the same way as what you just laid out for measles? That's my first question. And then we'll talk about a little bit more about some of the challenges in this space. Well, some vaccines against cancer can work um, just like a measles vaccine, although many of those vaccines use newer technologies than making an inactivated um, virus-based vaccine. But when we look at cancer vaccines that are approved, we get immunized against HPV to prevent cervical cancer. We're immunized against hepatitis B to prevent liver cancer. And that's because some of those cancers are actually caused by a virus. So some cancers are ideally suited to the development of a vaccine because if we can prevent people from getting infected by the virus, that if this virus becomes chronic and can live in the body will cause the type of inflammation that will create cancer, we can protect them from ever getting cancer. But few cancers are caused by viruses. So that leaves many common cancers, such as breast cancer, colon cancer, ovarian cancer. Are we able to make vaccines against these cancers? And the short answer is, yes, we can make vaccines because we understand now what proteins or portions of these cancers can stimulate the immune system. But we also know that these portions or segments of cancer are seen by the immune system as part of our self. So the basic technologies used for developing infectious disease vaccines where the signal to the immune system is very foreign don't work for cancer. Cancer needs something more to stimulate the immune system. All right. So now we're getting to the nuts and bolts of it. So let's talk about that a little bit. So I love that you reminded us that, yeah, we, we have been really, really impactful in some cancers that are actually caused by a virus, making them ideal to... Um, if we can prevent the viral infection, ostensibly we prevent the cancer. But you highlighted for us that that's just not the case for most cancers, that most cancers are not viral in origin. So you highlight for us a really important issue, which is that the same premise that the immune system uses to recognize an infection something that's different, that, that that's true for cancers as well, that they've become different in order to divide indefinitely and cause all the problems that cancer cells do. They inherently have become different 
and there are things about them that look different to the immune system. So when you're thinking about that and you're thinking about developing a vaccine to something like breast cancer or colorectal cancer in your space or pancreatic cancer, what kind of, help us understand what are the criteria? What, what do you think about when you're trying to develop a vaccine like that? Well, the biggest question when developing a vaccine against most common cancers that are now caused by viruses is what would you immunize against? One of the things we've learned in the last 20 years, we used to think that cancer didn't stimulate the immune system. But if you looked in the peripheral blood of almost every cancer patient, you would find evidence of an immune response against their tumor. The problem is the immune response is not very functional. We know that patients who generate um, the type of immune response that you would see against a viral infection, we call that a type one immune response, where lymphocytes that actually can kill cells are generated are those patients who are going to do much better with their cancers. Um, that's the type of immune response we would like to see in patients with cancer or generate with a vaccine. But the major issue is when you look at those antibodies that patients have in their blood and backtrack and look to see what parts of the cancer are those antibodies recognizing, they're recognizing self-proteins. So proteins that are involved with driving cancer growth. So they become slightly abnormal. Many of them are highly upregulated as the cancer grows faster. So the immune system recognizes there's something wrong there, but they're too close to ourself and what the immune system makes is the type of immune response which would try to dampen or stop an inflammatory immune response from generating. So when you contemplate giving a vaccine to a patient who has or has had cancer, their immune system is, in many cases, already educated to have the opposite immune response we want. So unlike patients who are getting an infectious disease vaccine who haven't yet been exposed to the infection, we have to make our vaccines and cancer much more potent, much more stimulatory, and we have to fool the immune system or trick the immune system into making the type of immune response that would kind of cause a local autoimmunity against these proteins that really are abnormally expressed self-proteins. Oh, it's fascinating. So here's the trickery, right? So interesting. Right. So you can look at cancer patients find the ways in which the immune system has tried and in some ways failed because these patients have an ongoing cancer but but as you indicated us there was an attempt 
the immune system recognized that something was not right here, tried to mount an immune response against something that was different about the cancer. And as you said, these are proteins that have become abnormal. But then, because they're also cell proteins, the immune response has been dampened. So you have a really interesting puzzle because you have a clue as to what could be targeted in a vaccine, but you also know that the immune system has already been, as you said, educated that this is really no problem. <laughs> Whatever this abnormality is, it's okay, just cease and desist. So you have to overwhelm the dampening effect with a vaccine. All right, so this is complicated. So I guess what question I have is because of that, are there some cancers that are better candidates for vaccines? And why would that be? Yes, there are. So um, we've talked about the characteristics of the target. And there are some cancers that are associated with lots of mutations. Mutations, as the cancer grows rapidly and genes mutate and they create proteins that are non-functional, have been associated with fairly aggressive cancers like melanoma or some types of non-small cell lung cancer. But we now know if you have lots and lots of mutations in your cancer, some of those mutations can be processed and presented to the immune system. So those mutated proteins can be recognized by the immune system in a more foreign way. They haven't been seen by the immune system before itself because they're truly novel proteins. So there are many groups that are working on those cancers that have a high mutational burden trying to make vaccines that would encompass many mutations and use those to immunize those patients. And those vaccines might be more similar to a viral vaccine or an infectious disease vaccine than um, targeting these more self-antigens. But the majority of um, common solid tumors we see, such as breast, colon, ovarian, prostate, um, most patients don't have highly mutated tumors. So the ability to find a mutation that would, you know, be able to create such a robust immune response is probably decreased. So we look for tumors where um, we can identify biologically important proteins that we can target. So if we can eliminate those proteins with the immune system, we'll actually have an impact against the cancer. It will probably be easier to immunize cancers that are not rapidly growing. So trying to envision immunizing leukemia where you can go from zero to 60 in a very short period of time, there's just not enough time for the immune system to kick in. And of course, the, one of the important things in the clinical translation of cancer vaccines is when do we use them? 
um, if you think about immunizing someone who already has an existing cancer that, you know, is not responding very well to standard therapy, um, that's kind of like immunizing someone who already has measles and they're very, very sick. Right. A vaccine is not going to do much. So we really try to think about either immunizing patients who've been treated to a complete response to prevent their cancer from coming back or even developing vaccines that we could give to patients at high risk to prevent them from developing cancer. I feel like we're just moving to the, to the climax here. So what do we do, right? This is, this is a tough space when we're thinking about, so you have tremendous expertise in colorectal cancer, which falls into all the categories you just listed, which are solid tumors, not highly mutated, so they don't look all that different than a cell that we would find in the colon that is not cancerous, but they are slow growing. We have early precursors of colorectal cancer, um, which we can find through colonoscopy and other measures. So where are you in this space? Where are you in the, the vaccine development, I guess, against colorectal cancer? Like we need the, <laughs> I guess we need the clincher. What's happening? Well, we've made great headway in identifying those proteins that um, are drivers of colon cancer biology, as well as those proteins that are highly upregulated in high-risk adenomas, and that upregulation is conserved against colon um, carcinomas. So these might be putative initiation proteins. They're important in maintaining the biology of the disease. So if we identify these proteins, and we've been able to do that using genomic technologies, and then prevent the production of those proteins in colon cancer cells, the colon cancer cell won't be able to proliferate or may even actually die. So we have identified proteins to target. We have shown that those proteins can stimulate an immune response in patients with colorectal cancer. And so now the key question is, how can we trick the immune system in seeing these proteins as something foreign or dangerous? And um, this is where vaccine technology has really reached its, its, its peak. We talked about the measles vaccine being kind of old-fashioned technology. It's the same thing with cancer vaccines. People have been studying cancer vaccines for a long, long time. 20 years ago, um, they were taking whole tumor cells, irradiating them so they're inactivating them, and um, injecting them into cancer patients, kind of like the inactivated measles vaccine, or taking the tumor cells and breaking them apart into little pieces and injecting those into cancer patients. Now, um, technology is so advanced, we're able to encode the specific DNA into a virus and give a vaccine that's part virus to kind of fool the immune system that this portion of cancer we're immunizing against 
um, is actually part of a virus and make a foreign immune response against it, that type of type 1 immune response. Our group has found that within the natural sequence of these self-tumor antigens, we can identify fragments that have been hidden to the immune system where if we cut out these fragments and put the fragments into a vaccine, we're able to stimulate that type 1 immune response. But with cancer vaccines, not only is the way we deliver the immunogen or the protein that we're trying to generate the immune response against important, but we also have another component called an adjuvant. So with more weakly immunogenic proteins, you team up your vaccine with um, an immune stimulator. And there have been many, many immune stimulators that have been identified. And they're even used in infectious disease vaccines where um, the virus is weaker and doesn't stimulate the type of immune response that, let's say, measles would. So these immune stimulators are put into the vaccine and they give the immune system a bit of a boost. They rev the immune system up. They turn on innate immune system cells that are used to help T cells and antibodies recognize the proteins that you're exposing them to, and they make the immune response generated more potent. You know, everything that you've shared with with us has left me really in a space of feeling hopeful. It's pretty incredible how far vaccine technology has come in a short fairly short period of time, and especially when we think about driving immune responses to cancer. So I'm left feeling motivated and excited about the potential that we have to trick the immune system into understanding that a cancer is non-self and something that should be targeted, to identifying what part of this tumor is most immunogenic? What part is potentially hidden, as you said, from the immune system that we could show the immune system, look what's going on, this is a problem. And then, as you just shared with us, we know so much more about not only how to deliver this vaccine, but also how we might boost the immune response in other ways through the use of adjuvants. So I guess, I have just a few more questions with you, and not not only am I hopeful in this space when we think about cancer vaccines, but as you've been talking, I've been thinking about how this ties in to the situation we find ourselves in now, where we hear every day on the news how uh, a vaccine will eventually, hopefully, be available for the novel coronavirus um, that causes COVID-19. And so this gives me a lot of hope in this space, too, and reminds me of the breadth and depth of understanding that we have about how vaccines work. So I, I guess I would, I just want to round out by saying that all Americans, we're all being reminded of and learning about the process of developing 
vaccines and how that happens. Um, where, where will that start? Where do you think researchers are now um, in thinking about what is it about this novel coronavirus um, that we can target to generate a vaccine? And how similar is that to the process that you've just described for cancer? Well, I can tell you um, the process that I just described is adapted 100% to the development of COVID-19 vaccines. So we've come a long way from inactivated live viral vaccines, which can be difficult to produce when you talk about making a vaccine that would go into every person in the world, having to grow up an attenuated virus in a egg embryo, it's extremely hard to scale up and extremely expensive. So many of these new technologies of creating, let's say, um, a viral vector, which is much easier to produce, that's encoding part of COVID to immunize patients, or actually use RNA that's encapsulated in a delivery vehicle that would make it more immunogenic. These are vaccines that are currently in phase one clinical trials for COVID-19 today. These are vaccines that are much easier to produce, much easier to scale up. And one of the reasons why we even have vaccines in clinical trials is because we have some ideas of what are the proteins that are the most immunogenic in COVID. So when you think about a virus, which COVID is a protein capsule that is covered in these spikes. And these spikes are the portions of the virus that interact with cells lining the human lung and allows the virus to break into the cell. These spikes on the surface of the cell are what's thought to really be able to stimulate a very potent immune response. So people already have an idea of the proteins that need to be targeted in COVID and are putting them into the most modern technology and have them in clinical trials right now. So what's going to hold up getting a vaccine? Um, what's going to hold us up is being able to test the vaccine and advance the vaccine in clinical trials. And I know everyone wants a vaccine as quickly as possible, but it's important that the vaccine that gets approved for this virus actually works. We're talking about the measles vaccine being able to protect, protect greater than 95% of people from the development of measles. So we have to take these vaccines do phase one clinical trials demonstrate that they're safe? We're going to have more than one vaccine in clinical trials, so we have to do some comparisons to see if a vaccine is more effective than another. We have to do phase two studies to prove that the vaccine can protect and get a handle of um, what level of protection do we see? And that requires that we go into areas where there's a high level of infectivity and we enroll hundreds and hundreds of patients and we monitor them to see if they get the virus or don't. And then 
go to large-scale clinical trials um, in many places around the world to see if that level of efficacy persists. So from a clinical trial standpoint, ensuring that the vaccine works is going to take time. That's why people are are saying this isn't something that's going to happen in a couple of months. It's actually probably going to take well over a year or even two years. Um, and that's fast. And then depending on the vaccine, how will we produce it? Um, is it going to be complex? We know that one thing we really need is the development of what's called herd immunity. So if you have an effective vaccine, but you're not immunizing many people, the infection will just come again and again and again. And we're, we see that in the state of Washington, going back to the measles vaccine, um, there's groups of people who believe that the measles vaccine itself can cause side effects and are not immunizing their children. And we're seeing big outbreaks of measles. Um, and these outbreaks are infecting older people who did get the measles vaccine, but their immunity has waned. So when we think about immunizing against COVID, we, we have to immunize almost the entire world to be able to get effective sterilization from this disease. And that's going to take years. And it's going to be a massive effort to get that vaccine once it's proven to be effective everywhere across the globe. Those are our challenges. You know, I, I really love the process that you laid out makes it so easy to understand. I, I have one, two more questions for you. I'd really love to know, are there ways in which the American Cancer Society has impacted you um, and your research, which might be surprising or, or interesting to our listeners? Our research that's funded by the American Cancer Society is really a far out idea of being able to use genomic technologies to identify proteins that are involved in actually starting cancer and immunizing against those proteins to prevent the development of cancer. Um, I think ACS is open to new ideas and more risky ideas and very much allowed us to be able to further develop this idea to the point where we're talking in the next five years to be able to begin testing such a vaccine. Um, the ACS is also well known for being able to fund young people to have them start their careers in cancer research. And I think it's very important um, that we continue cancer research um, and we make sure that there's a next generation of people who want to dedicate their lives to the prevention of cancer. One of the things that's happened in research these days is people used to think, you know, all researchers, they're doing their own thing, they're not talking to each other. Um, and that is absolutely not correct. In fact, when I think about the evolution of vaccines, 
and the meetings I go to and the people I talk to, I talk to infectious disease specialists, I talk to vaccine specialists, and the reason why you could get a COVID-19 vaccine into a phase one clinical trial within six months of the outbreak is because of this interchange between the whole community of people working on vaccines. And it's never stopped from SARS to Ebola to cancer, um, the evolution of technologies and the sharing of information has allowed us to go from things taking years to research now producing fruit um, in very short periods of time. And the American Cancer Society has been one of the advocates in being able to provide technologic platforms or in-face platforms to get people of different disciplines talking to each other. So they've really been a driver for cancer research for my entire career. Well, Nora, we are really excited about and hopeful for and big fans of your far out ideas and um, wish you all the very best of luck um, now and in these challenging times and always. Um, I just have one last question. Many of our listeners are cancer patients and caregivers. Is there a message that you'd like to share for these listeners in particular, um, especially as we all deal with the pandemic, but it um, has particular implications for those in the cancer community? It's been very challenging for cancer patients and caregivers during this COVID-19 pandemic. Um, we've really had to think about balancing the safety of our patients with moving ahead with therapy. So for example, as um, let's say a patient with ductal carcinoma in situ, it's very scary disease for that patient, but it's a relatively safe disease. We know that it's not an invasive cancer. Those cancers can be stable for years. It might be more of a risk for the patient to come to the hospital to undergo surgery where we have a shortage of protective equipment and a shortage of hospital staff than to just stay at home and wait for a couple of months to be able to have that surgery more safely. Or it may be um, a better part of valor to delay a certain therapy than make yourself sick from the therapy and expose yourself to being more more um, amenable to getting a COVID-19 infection. And many of the caregivers are trying to think through those thoughts. Um, I'm sure patients have gotten phone calls from their doctors saying, you know, you're supposed to be coming in for your checkup. We're going to hold on that. Let us know if you have issues, but we don't want you coming down to the clinic. Um, let me just tell you, as an oncologist, uh, people are really thinking about this and really looking at our practice. We, we do a lot of things that we probably don't need to be doing 
And this is a, a good time for practitioners to really think um, how often they do have to see patients and what types of um, tests they're doing on the patients and whether they really need to be done. And I think much like we started about reevaluating the lab and doing some thinking, we're seeing that in the clinic as well. And this pandemic may truly change the way we approach the treatment of cancer um, as we move through this pandemic. So for the patients, you know, really work with your healthcare provider. We're all sharing information and trying to get you through this the safest way we can and the best way we can for you to be able to um, have the best outcomes possible and really stay safe. We know that cancer patients are at a higher risk for complications with COVID-19 infection. And the best way to prevent those complications is really to follow all the rules, stay safe, and don't expose yourself. Well, Nora, we're so grateful for you and your colleagues, what you're doing now in this space and um, all the research that you've done. Um, so on behalf of the American Cancer Society, I wish you the best of luck in your research endeavors and stay safe. We'll look forward to checking back with you in a year and um, it'll be interesting to reflect on this time and to see where we are. So thanks, Nora. It was such a pleasure talking with you.